it was only after that time that I think things really went off the rails. And I think up until that point, I was kind of in denial about a lot of stuff. Simon Clark is an educational YouTuber, making videos on anything from earth science to atmospheric science and also a prolific gaming streamer. How does someone with an actual PhD end up becoming such a diverse YouTube creator? I am Alex, and this is Genesis. You're probably going to have a easier answer out of this one, but my intro question is always, what do you tell strangers that you do for a living? <laughs> I normally tell a half truth. I normally tell people that I make educational video for universities, which is kind of true because yeah. I make videos directly for client universities sometimes. I'm working on some at the moment, actually. Then I know my videos are watched by a lot of university students from my YouTube channel. So I don't think it's wrong to say that, but I can't bang myself to say I'm a YouTuber. The exception, of course, is if I'm talking to somebody who's quite a lot younger than me, and if I want to impress them, if I want to look cool. But like, oh yeah, I'm a YouTuber and Twitch streamer, you know, no big deal. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I will imagine that given your PhD and all the effort and time that has gone into that, that you will go into like, I have a PhD on this and I, and I work on something related to that. Somehow I thought I would be like a more, I don't know, respected answer among people who don't get YouTube? I know that the immediate question is if I said, oh, you know, I did a PhD in this, and they'd say, so what do you do now? If I then say I'm a YouTuber, then it's doubly weird. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you're right. I mean, I don't think there is such a thing as a normal career path after you do a graduate degree like that. You know, I suppose the normal thing to do would be to stay in academia, but so frequently people leave to go into industry or they change fields or something like me, where they kind of stay within the field, but in a totally different sector. So... As soon as you say you have done a PhD, you're kind of on the back foot in the conversation anyway. <laughs> Where were you born, Simon? I was born in the south of England, a place called Torquay, because my dad was at the Royal Navy kind of training college down there. My dad was a Navy officer, so we lived for the first couple of years of my life down near, well, near the water, I guess, but uh, in Dartmouth specifically. How was your childhood in general? Are you sure this isn't therapy? Is this my therapist who's coming <laughs> to check in on me? I can't believe that's the first time I get that question in this podcast. <laughs> you don't know how long I've been waiting for someone to make that joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to, because that is what it feels like. It's, you know, and, and tell me about your, your mother. And you know, were you happy then? Are you happier then than now? Yeah, no, I had, I had a lovely childhood. I felt like I was very lucky that I grew up in, we moved from Dartmouth to actually quite close to where I am now. I moved back to quite close to my childhood home in Bath. And the southwest of the UK is absolutely beautiful. It's lots of countryside, but also a couple of cities that are really kind of, well, they're kind of cool, really, like Bristol and Bath. They're cool. They've got a lot of stuff going on. So I had a lot of opportunities to, you know, for example, go and see concerts and plays and, you know, went to science lectures once or twice and kind of was interested in science from a young age. And yeah, I had the kind of unique thing, I suppose, of my dad not being there a lot of the time because he was Navy and so he'd be away for potentially months at a time. But, um, you know, my mum definitely picked up the slack. She's Both of my parents are wonderful. I absolutely love them to bits. You know, they did, I think, the best job they could have done considering the blob of protein that they had delivered uh, 30 years ago. <laughs> Since your road takes you through an academic path, which is not the norm for the people that I usually talk to. Is there such a thing as a normal backstory for YouTubers, though? Because I went into this thinking perhaps I'm not normal, but then I don't know if there is a normal. Good point. I think moving into this podcast, I had an idea of what most people's lives were more or less going to look like. 
And there's maybe three or four people that had fallen better in that. But I think you have a point that there it isn't as normative as I thought it was going to be. So, But I will definitely say that I don't think most people in YouTube have PhDs. So uh, that's something worth exploring. In a way, it's a bit like being a bounty hunter. In, in a sense, your life before becoming a bounty hunter is not very important. But you know there's going to be some interesting backstory, however you ended up doing this job. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so I do wonder though, in school, what sort of kid were you? Were you always into science or did you always have interests that reflect very clearly what you're going to dedicate your time as an adult or was it like a late life sort of revelation? <laughs> it was probably insufferable as a child because I just found stuff, and I still, I am still like this, I just find stuff interesting. Pretty much any subject. I used to just devour books when I was in, a young kid in primary school and I used to literally read the encyclopedia because it didn't seem to matter what I came across. There would always be something interesting. And in secondary school, when I was doing kind of the broadest range of subjects that you do in education in the UK, I absolutely loved pretty much every single subject that I did, whether, you know, that was English, maths, philosophy, computer science, science. And I did kind of very well across the board, I think, but just because I was interested. It wasn't like I went into science because that was the thing I was naturally kind of drawn to. I think I was drawn to it maybe a little more than some other subjects. But truth be told, I think the thing that appealed to me from a youngest age was writing and English. My earliest, well, after I wanted to be a dinosaur, my earliest kind of dream was was to be like a film director. I saw films, and in particular when I saw Star Wars for the first time as a kid, that was like a big moment when I was like, this is amazing. I want to do something like this. And so in a way, like that kind of brought together the more science-y, because it is obviously science fiction, aspects of education with writing and with English. And I realized after I've been doing this job for a little while that actually being a YouTuber is kind of a perfect job for me because it is every subject at the same time because you do have to write and you have to do things from the humanities and whether that's explicitly researching stuff to do with history or geography or whatever, but you have to pull together a video that is aesthetically pleasing. You have to worry about the music of it, but you also, in my case, have to worry about the technical side of the subject, whether that is science or just the technology and kind of the practical aspect of making it using a computer. So in a way, this job is what I wanted to do as a kid. Obviously, I had no idea what YouTube would have even possibly have been like when I was a kid. But because I had that kind of omnivorous attitude to learning, I think. Interesting. When it was your time to choose a career university, how the hell did you choose having so many interests? It was really hard. It was really, really hard. I mean, I, I had such a difficult time choosing subjects at the sort of the first time when you choose subjects, which is 14 in the UK, that I actually did a subject in my spare time. I did a, a GCSE in geography in the evenings and on Wednesday lunchtimes with a teacher. I love it. You were like the most classical stereotype of nerd that could be. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. I was reminiscing about this with some friends I saw recently, actually, that like, I remember the happiest day of secondary school for me was when the library became open for business in like the morning break, not just lunchtime, but I could spend another 15 or 20 minutes working in the morning break because I was just in there all the time. I was just, I did socialize a bit in kind of later years in sixth form, sort of, you know, age 16, 17, 18. But for the most part, I was just so there for learning and I would kind of, it was like a sponge. I just wanted to soak it all up. Yeah, when I had to choose, it was very difficult. And initially you chose four or five subjects. I ended up doing five at 
kind of A-level. And by that point, I was choosing with a physics degree in mind because I found physics to be the most... Well, I found science to be the most rewarding thing that I did. If I was just choosing what I found easiest, I probably would have done English and probably would have sort of gone down a perhaps history degree, perhaps an English degree kind of route, just because I feel like writing comes quite naturally to me. Whereas science, I found more rewarding. I found I enjoyed the subject more, probably. And when it came to choosing this particular science, there was a moment in year 10 when you first sort of start narrowing the subjects down but you also break out what was previously just science into physics chemistry and biology and i looked at the list of you know they gave you like an a4 piece of paper that was like you know what we've been doing is science this is what we call chemistry this is biology this is physics and i looked at this list and said well all the cool stuff is in physics like that's all of the really awesome stuff like rockets and planets and projectiles and stuff like that so that's what i want to do so, you know, that kind of made the choice for me, I guess. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, all right. Did you went for physics? That ended up happening? That was your pre-PhD bachelor? Yeah, so I actually did an integrated master's degree. So I did four years undergraduate, one year of which was the master's year, but you got one degree overall. So I got an M-Phys. Ooh, nice. What university was that? So I went to Oxford. I was at St. Peter's College, Oxford, which was... A hell of an experience. I'm not convinced it was the right place for me to go to university, but it was definitely something that taught me a lot. <laughs> Why do you think it might not have been the, the ideal place to go? Like, And I'm seeing this from like very much of a foreigner perspective when you only hear about these universities by reputation. Yeah. In a way, that's kind of the problem because there is a big deal in the UK about social mobility and the fact that if you want to go to the top universities, by which people mean kind of Oxford or Cambridge in particular, you kind of have to go to the right school. And there's a lot of myths about that as well. Like you only can go there if you go to certain schools. You can only go if you have like private education or you can only go if your parents went there or if you speak Latin or something like that. And none of that's true. Statistically, if you go to certain schools, you are far more likely to get in, partly because the quality of education is going to be better in most private schools than in most state-sponsored schools, but also because some schools have members of staff whose job it is to get you into Oxford or Cambridge and they'll coach you through the interviews that you have to do. I didn't have any of that. And I think when I went, I believed a lot of these kind of myths and misconceptions. And it made me feel like, I don't know if it was that I didn't belong, but I certainly felt out of my depth. I remember the biggest culture shock, because obviously it's a huge change going from your local school to university anyway. But I remember the biggest moment it wasn't seeing all the big grand buildings or wearing your mortarboard and your, your subfusk, what we call the, the suits and robes and stuff. It was when I went into the bathroom in my college that was opposite the common room and they had soap dispensers on the wall. And in my school, those would have been smashed off the walls. Like there was no way you would have been able to get soap from a bathroom. And that was honestly the moment that struck me where I was like, this is totally different to everything I've been used to up until now. And so, yeah, I feel like I kind of went in with this mindset of I'm starting from the very bottom of the pile because I don't belong and I'm going to have to work my way up. And I started pretty badly in my first year. Well, they actually slightly screwed up the exams and a third of everybody who did physics failed their first year because they just made the exams too hard. So, you know, I failed and I resat and I did very well. And then as I went through the degree, I did better and better. And then in my fourth year, things kind of came to a head. And I feel like that pressure of feeling in this unfamiliar environment, combined with a whole load of other stuff, not least the fact that the workload is absurd compared to most other universities. Whenever you had friends visiting from other unis, they would always be shocked at how much work you had to do. 
it'll be two or three times the workload of somebody else doing a physics degree in some other places. So it was a really high pressure environment. And that combined with everything else I just mentioned in fourth year meant that I kind of had a mental episode. I don't want to say a breakdown because it wasn't that severe, but I had a lot of issues with my mental health that I am honestly still kind of dealing with and definitely took years for me to get over whilst I was doing the PhD. And, you know, it definitely impacted my life in a way that I am pretty confident if I had gone to another very good university, like say Manchester or Imperial in London, I probably wouldn't have felt that way because I felt perhaps like I would have belonged a bit more. And I felt like, you know, there wasn't such a a high pressure environment to perform and to live up to, you know, I've got to be as good as these kids who have had a silver spoon in their mouth since birth and all that kind of stuff. So I think it was partly self-inflicted and partly the nature of the environment Oxford and Cambridge is the reason it's so much more intense is partly because I think they do just have a higher quality that they expect of you, but also because the terms are shorter. Instead of having 11 or 12 week terms, you have eight weeks in which you do everything. And so you're working around the clock. You know, obviously it gave me a phenomenal experience and and you get taught in a way that you just don't anywhere else. You do tutorials where it'll be me and one other student with a world leading academic you know, somebody who might be leading up a multi-million pound collaboration that, you know, is flying around the world all the time, comes back to teach you something very basic. Because if you're in first year, you're learning vectors and matrices. And for these high-level academics, it's the most trivial thing in the world. But they still come in and they teach you and you get kind of insights from them and a kind of passion for your subject in a way that you just don't anywhere else, I think. And socially, you know, there's the college system. So you have a unit of a few hundred people that you get to know very, very well. And you go to balls at colleges and you can go punting. And there's all these traditions and stuff that are great. And I'm not putting them down at all. But I question whether I would have been happier somewhere else. Interesting. So given that perspective, I have to wonder what made you jump to a PhD and continue your education. Because if there's something that living with someone doing a PhD has taught me is that they are terrible for your mental health in general. (laughs) So that seems like a way of just deepening the wound. So what was the logic there? I think Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) I think it was because I decided, well, in my third year, I thought I really like doing this particular subject, which was fluids and how the atmosphere behaves in particular. And I thought, you know, I could see myself doing research in this. At this point, I was like a first class student. Like I was doing very, very well. And I was like, I think I'm good enough to do this. So I did um, two months of research that then turned out to be a paper. And it was like a taster sample of doing a PhD, really. And it showed me that I like this research lifestyle. I like the fact that I'm given autonomy and I can go away and do my own thing. And I write code and do science, come back, report it to somebody else. And then we talk about what it means. Like, I like that. So I was applying for the following year, my fourth year, I was applying for projects. It was only after that time that I think things really went off the rails. And I think up until that point, I was kind of in denial about a lot of stuff. But at the end of it, I had these offers for two PhDs. And it turned out that because I had this kind of mental break in my fourth year, I did terribly in the exams. And they couldn't offer me a place because of one of the rules of Oxford, because I had a place to study a PhD at Oxford, one of the rules is you have to get what's called a 2-1, which is a pretty good grade in your degree. And I fell short of that by less than a tenth of a percent overall. Oof. They apparently peeled this to the head of the department and they were like, no, we can't change the rules, that's it. You can't give them a PhD place. So fortunately, the lady who would have been my supervisor 
basically asked around the research community and said, we've got the student, he's had a really rough year, but we think could do some really good science, like we believe in this guy. Does anybody have a place available? And somebody who turned out to be my supervisor in Exeter said, yeah, I've got some funding, I'll give him a shot. And kind of I was saved by the generosity of him taking a chance on me. You know, at that point, I was, felt like I was kind of in free fall. I was like, I don't know what I want to do now. That, that I was so set on doing this PhD for so long and being in academia for so long, I wasn't considering anything else. And so when this lifeline was extended to me, I was like, yeah, I'll take that. I'll absolutely take that opportunity and run with it uh, because I think I can make good out of this. Given not only just the effort, but the generosity of everyone around you that was needed to achieve this goal, I'm very curious about how this led to creating a YouTube channel. But before heading there, I want to know if during your time in university and doing the PhD, especially given all the pressure and all the work that you have to do, were you already actively consuming YouTube content? Yeah, I think I first watched YouTube in about 2007, maybe. I remember watching it from very, very early on in the, the site's history. I think it was perhaps just after it had been bought by Google, maybe a little bit before. And the reason for that is because I actually went to school with a guy called Charlie McDonnell, who made a YouTube channel called Charlie is So Cool Like. And he was this huge you know, star on the platform. He had millions of subscribers. And this wasn't when I was at school with him. This was when we were much, much younger. And I kind of heard about this. I think it was in the newspaper that, you know, local boy makes a million subscribers on YouTube or something like that. So I was kind of aware of that content from that point. And when I was in what we call sixth form, so like kind of ages 17 and 18, I was watching a lot of vlog content from him and other people in that kind of section of YouTube. So some Vlogbrothers stuff. Good morning, John. So a weird thing about modern life is that I can certainly forget what happened to me two weeks ago, but Google never will. And other channels that have since kind of been mired in controversy. But I was very active in watching YouTube content from before I went to university, actually. So at what point did you even start considering doing contributions to content of your own? Was this before or after graduating? So this was in my second term at university was when I made my first video as an undergraduate. Because kind of as I said, like going to Oxbridge, that there's so many of these myths and misconceptions that you have. And when I was applying, the thing that was most useful to me to actually clear a lot of this stuff up was just having an email conversation with one student who was studying physics at Jesus College, I think. And just hearing from a normal person and being like, you know, we don't have to speak Latin. You don't have to wear your robes all the time. Like I probably work for like 12 hours a day five, six days a week. Like, you know, that information that you just don't get from a prospectus was so useful to me. And I realized that if you went to a private school, say, you probably knew somebody who went to Oxford or Cambridge who could tell you this stuff and would have been very reassuring. But there were so many kids in my position who wouldn't have access to that. Like, I was lucky to get an email from this guy. So I basically made it, my first video was just an attempt to reassure people who were in my position applying for Oxford or Cambridge, that, you know, this is what life is roughly like. This is what you should expect. If you have any questions, ask me and I'll reply to them in the comments. And that was it. That was the only intention I had was just to kind of try and pay forwards that advice that I'd been given, but specifically choosing to do it on YouTube because I had watched a lot of content at that time. And at that time, I don't think there were any other Oxford-based YouTube channels apart from the business school that had one that was aimed at executives trying to get them to do like a, an MBA or something. There weren't any students making videos. And I was like, well, I watch YouTube and I'm a student there. I can do this. That was kind of how it all got started. 
how was that received by people? I mean, obviously, when you create a new YouTube channel from absolute scratch, it's very slow. And I remember watching the analytics creep in and seeing, you know, when you first got 10 views or 100 views. But people generally kind of took my offer and, you know, asked a bunch of questions. And I think it was about a year later that I did a second video kind of answering questions that people had put in the comments, but had come up often enough. Wait, hold on. So there was a year between your first and second video? That's got to be a record. I think something like that. Well, for one thing, it just wasn't a thing. You didn't become a YouTuber, you know. Yeah. I want to see if I'm just going to go and have a look at the upload dates of my first couple of videos, because I think it was about a year. There wasn't any intention to do this as a regular thing. It was just, oh, you know, enough people have asked questions. I should probably, you know... Uh, make another video. But it was very, very slow. And I think only uh, after it would have been a couple of years, because there was always a big bump in people watching the videos around the time that people went up for interviews. And that bump got bigger and bigger every year. And it was, it was so big after like three or four years that you couldn't even see the first, you know, what was initially so exciting on my analytics. Hang on, I'm just looking at it now. Oh, ah, yeah, okay, yeah. So I did the first one in April 2010, and then actually I did another one in October 2010. So that would have been, it's not quite a year. The one that I was thinking of was actually a year later than that in October 2011. Wow. God, I haven't looked back on these for a while. Yeah, and that was actually kind of funny because you, you said, how do people react? So the second video that I made that I actually totally forgot about was me going through the questions I was asked in my interview. Because when you apply to Oxbridge, you know, you do anything from two to five or six interviews about your subject. And everybody wants to know, you know, what questions did you get asked? How do you answer interview questions? What are they looking for? So I just sat down and went through what I was asked. And I'm, I still think that they're you know, important videos to get out there. But I had a very angry email from Jesus College where I did an interview who said, you've got to take these videos down. You know, we use the same interview questions every year. So you can't, you can't talk about these. <laughs> my tutor really had my back. They were like, well, no, that's stupid. Like private school kids are just going to go back to their school and tell the other kids what they got asked. Yeah. So, you know, they kind of caved and, <laughs> and stopped telling me to take it down. But I did think it was quite funny that there was this resistance from because I'm trying to help the university you know I, I am uh, directly trying to help the students of course but like I'm trying to encourage people to apply to this university and at first they were not happy with me at all how long did it take until because one issue well issue situation I guess that I could see from that is that you were making videos for a very utilitarian and specific purpose and to a very specific audience which were people sort of trying to go either to the same college as you or similar ones that they were had this sort of questions however that's a very small group of people so I imagine at some point you consider changing things up and actually opening up to something a little bit more general. How did that process happen? I made videos initially, as I said, kind of for trying to help kids get into Oxbridge, basically. Yeah. And then when I went to start the PhD, I kind of had the bug at that point. I liked making videos. And I felt like after I did, in my final year at Oxford, I did a vlog a week of term time. And this is boots on the ground, what my life is like. And that kind of set a tone for a lot of my channel, but it, where it was content for a purpose, trying to help people getting access to these universities. But it was also personality based in that, you know, I was kind of presenting 
my life about uh, you know for the video and when i did the phd i kept doing that but it was well this is what it's like doing a phd and there are because not many people do them you know you're not you're even less likely to meet somebody who has a phd than you are to meet somebody who went to oxford so i thought this is going to be valuable let's keep doing this i never really considered doing anything for the channel other than what i thought was kind of socially important up until very late on in the PhD, actually, because I did other stuff alongside that. I started doing science videos, but that was with the intention of I want to make science videos because I think the stuff is cool, but also because I think it's important that people understand, in particular around climate change. Because if you do a, a PhD in atmospheric science, inevitably you run into climate change, even if you're not specifically studying it in detail. So I made those videos because I just thought they were important to make. I only kind of went full time with it after I graduated from the PhD. And at that point, I thought, right, okay, well, you're not doing a PhD anymore. So you can't make that kind of content. What is the kind of content that you can make that feels legitimate and genuine, but that people will want to watch? So it was only really then it was only, gosh, that would be about eight years into the history of the channel that I actually started thinking about kind of, I guess, thinking about it as a business at all, really. What was the first video that represented that switch? <laughs> Very fortunately, it was one of my most popular videos. I really set off on the best foot possible, which was which planet from Star Wars could really exist. And that was me and a friend who we did a radio, a science radio show together on campus radio. We just decided to, for a video idea, go through all the planets that you see in the Star Wars films, because there were seven out at that point. And we just thought, well, you know, let's just talk about the science of this for 20 minutes. It did really, really well. Although it didn't at first. It was a bit depressing when you were like, right, I've graduated. I'm going to try and do this job. And I should point out, I didn't have the momentum at that point to do the job full time. I basically started doing it full time because I thought I'd regret not trying to do it full time. I just thought that, you know, I'll take this leap of faith and see if it takes off. And when I first released that video, it, it did terribly. It got for so few views. And considering I'd put a whole load of more effort into that than I had into previous videos, I was quite disappointed. And since it's just kind of been a really consistent, people seem to keep wanting to come back to it and keep watching it. But, you know, it did really surprisingly well and kind of set the tone for quite a while, I think, for the channel. Huh. Right. How long did it take until it transformed into a career opportunity, a job opportunity, because you mentioned this as, oh, an opportunity to do this job. However, a lot of people don't approach YouTube from the get-go as an opportunity to build a business that tends to pop up naturally after a while. When did that transition happen for you? When did it start to look like a business or an actual career path? Probably about six months before I had to hand in my thesis, which was when I realized that I didn't want to stay in academia. I didn't have the best experience during my PhD. I mean, and in particular, basically, I just wasn't supervised. The key relationship in any PhD is the relationship between the student and the supervisor. And my supervisor had never supervised anybody before. And both me and the other guy who were kind of going through the process at the same time just weren't really given the advice and the guidance that we needed. We knew that we didn't want to stay in academia. And at that point, I was like, well, what do I want to do? And the thing that kept coming back to me was I loved and appreciated most of all about the PhD, the freedom that it gave you. The fact that I was my own boss, I could turn up and work for as late as I want and go home and there's nobody telling me to work harder or less hard or anything like that. If stuff goes well, it's because of me and if stuff goes poorly, it's because of me. And I realized that I kind of just had this 
you know, this YouTube channel, which at that point, I think when I was kind of thinking about it, it was probably about 60,000 subscribers. I was, you know, I thought, well, there's maybe something there. Maybe I can try and do this. And in the kind of six months after that, as I was running up to graduating and handing in my thesis, I think you can sort of see there's a bit more in the titles that I'm choosing and the videos that I'm choosing to do, it was a bit more like I'm trying to build something that's recognizable here rather than just this is a thumbnail that represents the video and a title that represents the video. You know, it was very kind of boilerplate. This is you get what you see kind of thing. So yeah, over those kind of six months or so, I kind of eased into this idea of, okay, maybe you should start thinking of this as a business that you run now. How has that gone since then? Oh, terribly. The <laughs> <laughs> worst mistake of my life. No, it's been up and down. The thing that I craved most from my job, the freedom and the flexibility to do whatever I want has been there from the very start. And it's been very rare that I have felt that I have to do something. So in that sense, it's been fantastic. As I'm sure everybody who is on this podcast will tell you, there are ups and downs in the journey of being a YouTuber. And there are some times when you absolutely hate the nuts off of this job mm -hmm. because you are putting so much work into something and you're getting nothing back from it. And at the moment, well, certainly for the past kind of year or so, I felt like that has been the case for me, that there has just been a, whether that's a change in the algorithm or a change sub slowly taking place in the content that I make, I don't know. It feels like it has been a drag more than it has been a delight recently of kind of, I've been trying and making videos that I think are better than anything I've made before, but you don't get the return from that. And so, you know, at the moment, I'm trying to shift my focus and trying to approach this as, right, your strategy of just making the videos that you are super passionate about and you think are important and you'll put your heart and soul into hasn't worked. So there now needs to be a balancing act between doing that and making videos that you are confident are going to get views that you can still make and make well and feel legitimate doing. But there has to be that balance between what I want from it and what the audience wants from it. So that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. But overall, for the past what's it been, three years now, it has been an amazing experience. And it's given me opportunities and allowed me to do things that I never really thought I'd be able to do. So, you know, I do the best job in the world. I can't really complain. I wanted to know a little bit of your experience with a side activity that's related to this, which is streaming from all the mm. people that I know are in our little circle of creators. You're probably one of the most active ones in terms of streaming. And trying to follow your example, I have tried getting into regular streaming twice or thrice, and I never can seem to be able to stick to it. So <laughs> I do wonder, how did you got started on that side of creating content, and how has that been an experience so far? So actually, much like doing the video blogs at Oxford, you know, I made video blogs because that was what I watched. I watched stuff from Charlie So Cool Like and people like that. During the PhD, I got really into watching streams. And in particular, there's a group of creators called the Yogscast who started out as YouTubers. They still do a lot of YouTube content, but they're primarily Twitch streamers. I ended up watching a lot of their content. And because I was a creator of some size, I was invited to kind of see them in their office. And we actually became friends. And I streamed with them last week, actually. And I basically thought, well, they can do that. And, you know, it seems fun. I'll give it a go. With the other kind of lens of trying to do something that is again for a particular social purpose, the, the idea being that the audience that watches stuff on Twitch 
is mostly a young audience, and they're mostly there to watch content that they're not really going to think about. It's just idle stuff to put on in the background or perhaps something that they watch that's funny, which was kind of how people viewed vlogs back in, certainly back in kind of 2012, mm -hmm. 2013 era. And I figured that perhaps I could do the same thing that I did with vlogs again, which was to take a format that people mostly use for relaxation and view as kind of low investment capital. You know, you don't have to engage with it very much to get something out of it. And to try and do the same thing of, of making educational streams, which I think has worked out quite well. I now do other stuff besides just educational streams. I currently am coding up a general circulation model, climate model in Python, which I do and kind of explain what I'm doing on stream. Previously, before the end times plague. I was also going through past papers of exams and kind of teaching exam technique and showing kids not only this is how the subject matter works, but, you know, like this is the answer to the question, but also this is how the examiner will approach it. This is what you need to show kind of thing, which I will come back to because exams are actually going to be coming back next year, certainly in the UK, whereas we've had two years now with no exams. I didn't seem there being much point in doing those but yeah, I also do gaming. I've been playing XCOM with my soldiers named after donators. <laughs> oh God, it's great. You feel really bad if you kill somebody who's uh, donated a lot of money. <laughs> and I also do a regular stream where I paint Warhammer, which has been a great excuse to make me take time to actually do something that I just enjoy. And yeah, I love regular streaming. It's by far my favorite way of making content because it's so immediate. The interaction between you and the chat is immediate. You see memes being formed in real time. Like you might do something in a video that becomes a meme in the comments and you see it on Twitter and stuff. But when you do something on Twitch that becomes a meme, it forms right in front of your eyes. And I love that. I love that sense of community that it brings. Was it a schedule thing that you think you struggled with when you, when you tried streaming? Yes. Like, I told myself, like, oh, well, I'm going to stream every weekend. Something always happens that needs my attention that weekend, and I'm too exhausted to do it. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, for me, I put out a schedule on Twitter every week, and that's the thing that actually keeps me going, I think, most weeks. Like, I do enjoy streaming, but knowing that people are expecting a stream is the thing that probably actually keeps me coming back week after week at certain times. And also knowing that I am not going to do stuff except for a very limited slot. People aren't going to expect me to stream apart from, say, 2 till 5 on a Sunday or uh, 7 till 9 on a Thursday or whatever it may be. Means that, you know, you're like, right, I have to get all my work done before this. And actually, I don't know if it's the same for you. My schedule is so free being self-employed that actually having pegs in the ground that you have to get stuff done by is super useful. So having a like, oh, I can't work on the video this evening because I got a stream means that you actually are more likely to finish it in the afternoon. So I'd recommend it. I'd recommend trying and putting out a schedule and seeing if you can stick to it. It's going to require a little bit more work, but yeah. Seeing you and some of the other folks streaming more regularly has been... Uh, it just looks so interesting as a type of content. And the way you describe it to me right now, it just makes it sound even more interesting. I, I got to jump on that at some point. It's great. Honestly, if I was a smart businessman, I'd probably stop making YouTube videos because the amount of blood, sweat and tears that go into making money from YouTube is just so much greater than the amount of effort that you have to put in to make something that you're proud of and will make money on Twitch. It's almost hilarious how disparate the two amounts of kind of effort required is. Maybe I should start streaming in Spanish. Maybe the language is the issue. Huh. Okay, we'll see. Perhaps. I honestly have no idea what the landscape is like in other languages. My partner is a Spanish and French teacher, so I learned a little bit 
of Spanish to try and impress her. And then when that worked, I stopped. So I don't really consume content in other languages very frequently. But it'd be interesting to know if there is a streaming, kind of an active streaming community in Spanish. I can only assume there is. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you have had a, a fascinating journey. Is there anything in the near future that you are looking forward to in terms of content creation? Yeah, the big projects, well, the two big projects, I suppose, that are looming are, firstly, a book. I've written my first nonfiction book, which is out in January. It's called Firmament. I'm currently working through the last round of edits, which you'd think would mean, you know, tweaking a, a sentence here or there, but actually I'm kind of rewriting a fair bit of the middle of the book. And That needs to be done in the next kind of month or two. So that's like a big kind of deadline that's looming. The other thing which has been a project of mine for years is this climate model I've been coding on stream, which we call Claude. It's a long story. The ultimate goal with that is to make videos on a separate YouTube channel to mine that is just going to be about hypothetical planets and answering questions like, what would the world look like if it spanned twice as fast? Or if we were twice as close to the sun? Or if we were the size of Jupiter? What would weather look like and what would the planet look like? And that's something that you can only really answer with access to a big climate model. And they are very computationally expensive to run, unless you build one yourself that is designed to be used for these kinds of, not trivial, but certainly not earth-shattering important issues. And so the content that is surrounding that project is partly how the model works, which is why I've been coding it on Twitch, and it's why the code is publicly available for anybody to, to access. And I will be making content when this is kind of all up and running about development of the model and encouraging people to submit their own code, using this as a springboard, teaching people how to code. But also, yeah, making these videos about topics in earth science and atmospheric science to talk about, for example, you know, how radiative budgets work, how circulation cells in the atmosphere work, but have this visual and this really kind of snappy idea of, oh, I wonder what the Earth would be like if it spanned the other way around, or what if there was ocean where there's land and land where there's ocean. Using those as jumping off points to get people interested and try and tie in the side of science, show how atmospheric science and Earth science in general works, how these models are used to kind of get points across. And that's something that I've been planning for years, and I'm really hoping we can get it to a workable form this year and start making videos by the end of 2021. Fantastic. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to that. You have way more in the oven than I expected. That sounds fun. There's <laughs> a lot of work. I mean, there's so many. At any given time, I have about eight different projects that I'm kind of working on to varying degrees. Like whether those are big things like that, or I have about three or four videos under production. And then there's all the Warhammer armies that I'm painting at the moment. And I've just moved house. So that's a project in itself. Apparently, the thing that I've taken away from this interview is that I just have Stockholm Syndrome for working too hard. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all do. It's <laughs> why we do this job. <laughs> yep. Thank you so much for your time, Simon. It was my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on, Alex.